theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, we've talked to school administrators. We've uh -huh. talked to teachers, technology people. We've talked to higher ed. We have not yet talked to a school psychologist. I know this will be interesting because being an educator myself, I can't say that I know all that school psychologists do. I've always had them in IEP meetings, but beyond that, I really don't know their full function in schools and how they support students. So I am extremely interested to find out. Me too. Well, Jordan Romanowski is currently working as a school psychologist at Chicago Public Schools. She completed her bachelor's degree in teaching at DePaul University. And after teaching for a brief period, she began her master's in education specialist degree at Governor State University in 2015. It is her third year working with Chicago Public Schools as she completed her internship at CPS during the 2018-2019 school year. So if you could just join me in welcoming Jordan Romanowski to the show. Hi everyone. Hi Jordan, how are you? Good, a little nervous. Oh, <laughs> don't you be guys? nervous. You are amongst friends and we're happy that you're here. Congratulations on the closing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so well, we're happy. So, so we're going to jump right in. And we were just talking about, we've interviewed the entire gamut in education. We've interviewed parents and students and administrators and teachers and technologists, just everyone, authors of education books, and haven't had the opportunity to interview school psychologists. So we're happy that you're here. And from my experience being a principal, I only know my school psychologists from being in IEP meetings, you know, doing the assessment and being in IEP meetings where they coordinated the tasks and roles of other stakeholders, such as the parents, mm -hmm. educators, administrators, and that person told all of us what to do. So can you describe your role as a school psychologist? and maybe even how your role is different than other school support personnel. And this is a big question, so I know I'm asking a lot. And can you kind of create a scenario for us so that we understand? Sure. Okay. <laughs> that yeah. teacher and you said, sure. Sure, why not? <laughs> I guess the best way to describe, and I think 
the role varies from from district to district and even sometimes from school to school when it comes to what kind of space you need to fill as a school psychologist so i guess the best way i can describe it is an evaluator and then also one of those crisis support personnel that are in the school as well as mtss which is our interventions things that we do to prove that a student needs more help than the general education curriculum so those are some some hats that i i feel i i wear i should say a little bit more frequently than others. I know a lot of school psychs can be in more of that counseling role. Gosh, I don't even know where to, I want to do it justice, but <laughs> I don't even know how to describe how, I mean, I guess the way I spend my day is that I write reports, I meet with students, I'll interview teachers. And the coolest part about my job is that I get to work with all of these different kids throughout the school year. I get to see them and I get to measure their growth and kind of investigate what they're really, really good at and what they still need help with and foster more success in that way. An example of when, uh, what, what, what would you like to hear an example of specifically? Well, I know that as classroom teacher, I would be called in to assessment meetings, IEP meetings, either as one of the teachers of a student or a regular ed teacher representative. Mm -hmm. And I saw that aspect. Occasionally I would see this school psychologist in the classroom who was observing a particular student and just the to capture data about the surroundings, the environment, and how the interactions were playing out. So that's really my only experience. And I, it's really interesting to hear you talk about being able to work with kids. And if you could tell us just a little bit about what that looks like in comparison to what maybe a school social worker would do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the school social worker has a lot of kids on their caseload. The school psychologist might have like a handful, if any. A lot of the things that I work on, a lot of executive functioning, a lot of on-task behavior, social workers, they also work on those things, but they mostly, they mostly work on that social emotional aspect. So they want to help students work cooperatively with each other, take turns, learn how to ask for help, advocate for themselves, knowing when it's a socially appropriate time to do one thing versus when it's time to sit and listen and kind of pay attention to what's going on in school. So I guess that would be one difference between the psych and the social worker. And I think the social worker is also probably more of the go-to when it comes to like a crisis with a student, whether it's suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, those kinds of things going on, which unfortunately do happen in the schools, especially during the time that we're in. And it's a little difficult to do that remotely, but we're doing the best we can and just trying to, just trying to do our jobs to the best of our ability. And hopefully we're still able to make the impact that we hope to make this year. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, that was that was good. So I do want to ask the things that you mentioned, I would think that you would need to be there with the, the students face to face. Mm -hmm. So with this pandemic and the absence of face to face interaction, how do students get recognized and served? It's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. It depends on the structure of the school. Like, do they have a behavioral health team? What kind of MTSS or like intervention process do they have? 
Does the school even have those things? Sometimes you'll get an email from a teacher saying, I'm worried about this kid, can you meet with them? So it, it, it truly depends on the school that you're at. The thing that has been really frequent as of this school year is that we're actually getting a lot of emails from parents. So they're starting to notice a lot of those social emotional things coming out in their kids as well. And I would say that has been one difference. I've, I mean, this is my second year being a full-time school psych. I was an intern, then I did my first year last year, and now it's my second year. So my experience is limited, but comparing it to last year, I would say that the parents are seeing a lot more of these behaviors that are concerning them and bringing them to the to the school and it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to ignore <laughs> so, so a little a little story a friend of mine she works for cps chicago public school and she was very concerned about one of her students that was apparently in a trance and it was getting worse and she sought out some help she and contacted the school psychologist and asked for an observation. They did an observation. They did the whole remote end to the student's computer so they could see what the student was looking at. And the student was watching movies. <laughs> I did have, um, I did hear a story about a student that their parent actually had the student write an, e an apology email to their teacher saying, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention in class. I was watching My Little Pony. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so I am, are you able to tap into those resources where you can see, observe the student, number one, go into a classroom remotely to do observations and then to see what the student is watching? The teachers have access to it. I do not. They have something called Go Guardian at CPS. So they can. Yeah, we've heard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have access to that. But the, I think the hardest part is that we can't see any of the kids in CPS also. I think it's actually a fair rule is that they don't require the kids to have the cameras on. They also aren't required to use their microphone. So you could go this entire school year without seeing the kids face once, potentially. And you could also go the entire school year without seeing, hearing the kids' voice. Obviously, the bad part of that is we have no idea what their body language is like. Are they even paying attention? And then the flip side is, for whatever reason, and it, this, I would say, is a little bit more prevalent for the older kids. So, like, older than third grade. The kindergartners, the first graders, the second graders, the third graders, they all have their cameras on. They're always trying to show you stuff. They're like this all the time. They're just like... They're so enthusiastic and they just like love watching themselves on camera. But once they hit that eight or nine, I'm, I'm sorry, nine or 10 uh, years old, then they start getting a little- I know they're all private. Yeah, and I think it's part of that imaginary audience concept where like they feel like everybody's looking at them. And personally, I don't like seeing myself on camera, but I'm an adult and I know that it's important for people to see my facial expressions. It's important for me to have that connection with the person that I'm talking to, even though it is limited on Zoom or Google Meets or what have you. But these kids, it's hard for them to get on stage and do some sort of performance for school or to get up in front of the class. So it feels like they're being magnified. And it's, I think it's getting worse because they can actually see themselves in the camera. Sometimes I try to hide my, my little self-view because it just <laughs> makes me feel a little better sometimes. But that's kind of what I attribute to it. I know that there is one student in particular that I worked with this school year that actually was so anxious about being on camera that he was prompted to put his camera on. And then he like 
wouldn't answer. And then his mom emailed the teacher later on was like, he like was stuck in the bathroom. He was getting like really, really sick. Like there's two sides to it. So it's really hard to have that happy medium. And there's something that I'm working with the teachers on. One thing that I'm working on with the teachers is like a, like a classroom incentive chart, because we, we can't like require them to, to have their cameras on and they have no idea if the kids engage, they have no idea if they're paying attention and their grades are slipping, whatnot. So trying to make like a whole class incentive to, if we have this percentage of the class have their cameras on, then you get a point for the day. And then perhaps at the end of the quarter, they could have like some sort of class reward that they all vote on. So we're trying to find ways around it, but it's, it's pretty hard. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about a big part of your job being assessment, evaluation, mm -hmm. and you also, briefly mentioned multi-tiered support systems. So part of that assessment and evaluation is determining what support systems they would need. First of all, maybe talk a little bit about the assessment evaluation piece, but also how does that, how has it changed in this remote setting? A lot, a lot. So I would say that my assessments have changed immensely. And because I don't know. It's just been so strange to kind of adapt so quickly when I just learned how to technically do this job. <laughs> so we're moving towards more informal assessment. And I'm very grateful that I at least have the experience that I have and have learned all of that flexibility that comes from being a school psychologist. I used to want to know, I, I'm, I'm the kid, I'm the kid that wanted the rubric. I wanted to know exactly what you wanted from me. I wanted to have everything lined up for me. And so I really feel for those kids right now that are not getting that from school at times. Our teachers are doing their best, but there is a lot of, you know, executive functioning that the kids have to have to tap into in order to keep track of their assignments. So kind of just learning how to look at the data that is available. So I look at the kids records. I look at work samples. I try to glean whatever skills that I can from those things observing them in the classroom, interviewing them, even though they won't turn their camera on a lot of the time, or they won't even turn on their microphone. So I'll have them type in the chat. And honestly, if they give me more information by typing in the chat, I'm going to do what I have to do. I give them some informal assessments. So curriculum-based assessments are a really good tool for those of you that are like, I'm not sure what kind of, at least some sort of standardized assessment that can be given remotely that's free is Easy CBM. And if you want to get the teacher deluxe version, it's $40 for the whole year. And then you get like 200 students that you can add. And it gives you assessments for benchmarking from K through eight. So it's pretty great. And one of my schools actually shares an account. And so I'm able to log into that account, see what kind of data has been collected. And then I'll pull a student and I'll give them maybe like a passage reading fluency measure, a reading comprehension measure, a math measure, and then whatever skills those things cover, I'll analyze what kind of problems they got right, what kind of problems they got wrong. And then I'll write my, my report based on those skills that they were able to show me in addition to the classroom data that the teacher was able to provide to me. Rating scales are also really telling, especially because the parents have a really close view as to like how their students are behaving at home and they see how they're behaving when they're doing schoolwork. So it's really, really nice to at least have that input. You know, I get the teacher input as well. So it's a lot of different pieces and it feels like you're putting a jigsaw puzzle together. It almost feels like, I don't know, Tetris or something. You're trying to make all the, piece, the pieces fit, but it, it's, been a, it's been a really enlightening experience because I feel like it's 
taught me to be way more flexible and to become more creative in my job. So I love assessment. So I'm liking this part of the conversation. <laughs> I love it well, too. But, but also I think like our listeners are learning a lot because they just don't know what some of the school support personnel do. So if you recall, and you were there when CPS had a strike last year, yeah, four kids, a strike and then a pandemic. And so there was a strike and most of what was said about the strike is that they didn't have enough support personnel. That includes people like you. Mm -hmm. so, so in knowing that, do you feel that you were spread thin and in meeting the needs of the students. What was the situation where teachers really felt like they needed to strike? Was too much weight on the teachers? There wasn't enough Jordans <laughs> hired? I don't know about Jordans. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, I, I would like to know, I would like to meet one person in education, first of all, that does not feel spread thin at some point in their career. I would like to speak to one person that does not feel that way. I think that's all that, that, that is what causes us to be flexible and creative. However, we, we saw a lot of the things that our students needed. They needed smaller classrooms in order for the gen ed teacher to reach the amount of kids that are in that classroom and that they want to make sure that there are kids that are not going to slip and fall through the cracks because you have 35 kids in a classroom. We also don't have, and this is becoming really apparent during the pandemic is that we also like don't, we don't have enough room for the kids that could potentially go back in person in order to keep them safe in terms of spacing out in the classroom. They recommend six feet apart. Some classrooms they can, but it's not all of them which is it's making a lot of the inequity that happens within the district a little bit more clear. And I know that's the goal of the district is to become more equitable. In terms of like the related service providers, a social worker in every school, a nurse in every school, those things, I feel they are non-negotiables. Even though that's not, those are not my roles, I know my students need them. If a kid has an asthma attack one day and the nurse is only there on Wednesdays, like how is that going to work? You can only have asthma attacks on, on, on Wednesday. Is that, is that, or you can only have a crisis on Thursday, half the day. Like we just need more personnel to meet these needs because that's just not how life works. You don't, you don't get to choose when your crises are going to be. You don't get to choose when you have a health concern. So I think that's more so what we're trying to move towards and fighting for that for, because we know that's important for our students, even though it does not necessarily mean there's going to be more school sites in each school Hopefully we move in that direction during the next contract or within the next 10 years. I, I hope that that's the direction that we head. You know, one of the things I thought is one thing to say, okay, yes, we need enough support, but are there enough candidates in the school psychology program to even fill that void? Right. So even if your district wanted to, can they? Right. And that that's another thing. I think there is not a lot of awareness of what a school psychologist is. I think a lot of people know what a, a counselor is. I think a lot of people know what a social worker is, a nurse, speech pathologist even. Not to say that one's better than the other, but I do think school psychology was is not a very popular, <laughs> a not a very popular field just because of, I guess, the nature of the job that it was. I think 
they were kind of the guest in the school for a very long time. And the direction that we're trying to move with school psychology is we want to be more involved. We want to get involved with the behavior aspect, the social emotional. We want to do more than just test. Even though that is a majority of our job, we want to be the ones that if someone's out sick, we're here for you. Social worker's not there on that day, you can call me. The more people that are trained about social, emotional, and crises, and all of those different factors that do affect our students' ability to access their curriculum, the better. So I think that was a really nice part of what GSU kind of taught me in my studies is because I, I mean, I studied as an educator. So I wasn't, most of the psychologists back in the day were more so trained in psychology, which makes sense. But now we're getting a little bit more trained in the curriculum first and then learn that school psych role. And yeah, I think that's pretty much the gist of it. <laughs> so you mentioned Governor State University yeah. and Jordan, you could have gone to any other university that you wanted to. Mm -hmm. So what makes your training at GSU so different from what you've seen at other programs and what are your big takeaways? You know, the first thing I think of when you ask that is my mom's experience when she first studied at GSU. She had two kids at the time and she was only able to go to school part-time and her professors were so, so important to how she was successful later on in getting her master's. And she, you know, I, I thought that was really inspiring to me when I was younger. And when I found out that GSU had a school psych program, I was like, okay, I, I know that these people will be supportive during this process. And I know it's going to be a hard process. I always knew that I wanted to go into some sort of field where it involved education and also involved the special education realm. So that was, was kind of what I was looking for. And when I decided on school psych, I applied to Loyola. I applied to GSU. I'm trying to remember where else I applied to, but it just seemed like my mom had such a good experience. And then when I did go into GSU, the program was really small. I mean, that was kind of a pro for me. And I felt like my professors were invested in me. I felt like my coordinator was invested in me. I felt like I had a really good community to rely upon. Like my cohort, we still talk all the time. Some of the people in my cohort actually work in CPS and we consult all the time. It's just really nice to have a community to go to, to consult with, and then also for support. So yeah, that's pretty much why GSU was, I guess, such a positive experience for me. And part of the reason why I looked into it was because they helped my mom a lot. And my mom did so many great things. I was like, oh, well then, then I could do it too, right? <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Well, I love hearing you talking about a school community and GSU is a, a community. It's a family. Mm -hmm. What about whenever you entered your own school as a school psychologist, how involved in general or how engaged is the school psychologist in the school community? I think it's a little hard because to be super engaged because we are, I, I think this is something that the RSPs I'll probably feel is that we're in so many different schools that we're not seen there every day. So that, I mean, naturally you don't, they're not the first people you think of when you think of your school, you know what I mean? Like you think of your principal, you think of your, your teachers, your paraprofessionals. And I think that's something that I'm trying to make sure that I do is build relationships with the people that work in my schools and also with my team. I think it's something I'm working on and it's a challenge because 
especially in this setting, it's so limiting. <laughs> and you also get, you could, this time next year, I could be at a totally different school, completely out of my control. Like, it doesn't yeah, mean- I agree. Those things, you have to be really intentional about making that type of investment. You know, we're so busy. Like, it's easy to eat lunch in your office. Yeah. And, but you need to be intentional about going to eat in the lunchroom where students mm -hmm. eat or things like that. It, it really, you have to be intentional about getting involved in the community. And I imagine it's harder for you when you serve multiple schools of yeah. trying to make that investment. So I'm happy that that's on your things to do list of being more involved. So I just want to tell our listeners, we're listening to Jordan and I want to say Myra Bali, but it's not. It's Jordan. <laughs> Romanowski now. Romanowski. Myra Bali is my middle Jordan. name, though, because I couldn't let it go. <laughs> yeah, Romanowski. And, we're t and Jordan is a school psychologist, and we're talking about how her role as a school psychologist and how we fill these voids and how we service students in schools. So thank you, Jordan, for being here. You were saying an acronym earlier, and I don't know that acronym. It started with an R. Ooh. R something P, what did you call yourself? Oh, RSP, Related Service Provider. Related Service Provider. Yeah. <laughs> That's for me. You know, in education, we have lots of acronyms. So we have- yeah. My husband complains uh, about it all the time. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jordan. <laughs> so, so speaking of being so busy and it's hard to kind of insert ourselves in the community, tell us how you maintain self-care and keep, from burning out, we're finding that teachers are only putting in a three-year stint. School psychologists are finding private practices and things like that. So what are you doing? It's because it seems like you just love your job. You continue, you, you still love your job. So what are you doing for self-care and to keep yourself from burning out? <sighs> this is something that I think we, we all kind of struggle with at, at certain points, but as of this year, a lot of downtime after after eight o'clock. At some point, you just you got to cut it off. There's always more work to do, but if you want to wake up fresh the next day and do your job effectively, there's got to be a cutoff point. Obviously, there are there are some nights I'm working still, but I also try to reserve my weekends for just spending time with my dog and my husband and my friends on Zoom right now. <laughs> In exercise, things like that really help me kind of just stay centered. But it's a little harder this year because we're stuck in one place. Yeah, tell us about it when you're yeah. <laughs> here and you're still attached to it. Yeah. And for me, working has become a hobby. So if I'm not working, what else am I going to do? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I will say, though, that the thing that has been keeping me going is that, like, I still get to meet with students one-on-one. -on -one. I still get to work with them. Even though my job has changed, that part hasn't. And I meet so many really cool kids and I really do love the evaluation process. I think it's so cool. It's very nerdy of me, but I think it's really nice to, to see a kid's progress and then to help the team figure out what, what's next for them to make them more successful. That accompanied with the self-care piece is the thing that's been keeping me going this year. Well, tell us more with these individual meetings with students. Are you seeing some effects of this isolation? that we've had for however many months it is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been 10 months, Amy. 10, 10 months. <laughs> years. Long time. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's almost a year. 
It's January 44 right now. I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they're saying that there's a lot of social emotional effects, negative effects, suicide rates are going up, things like that. So yes, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, it's hard. I feel like a lot of kids are just so isolated from their peers and we're seeing a lot of regression in their social skills. I think that it, it does contribute to the fact that they don't want to put their camera on at times. I think, I think that they're just like, they feel very alone and it's really hard when you can't pull them from class and have a conversation with them. Sometimes I'll reach out to a student and I can't even get a hold of them. I have a student that I mentor at this time and he just, he legitimately just forgets. <laughs> I reschedule every single day throughout the week. We meet at 1230 on Mondays and he just keeps forgetting. <laughs> he's a delightful kid though, but he's just super forgetful. But I think that there also, there are, there are some kids that are not in good situations at home. And I think that might be the most concerning part to me is because we're so limited in what we can do. I know that admin does some home visits when they don't hear from some kids. That's also another thing that we're noticing. That's something that I'm struggling with is trying to make the kids feel heard and seen and supported when they're feeling a lot of chaos at home when school is their safe place. So I want to extend this question. What would you propose or what would you suggest teachers be ready for when those doors open, when students come back, students who may not have been able to engage fully in the services or have had some social emotional regression? What do we, what do we do? What do we look for? I just think patience is probably the biggest thing. I think you might be teaching things over and over again. They may not be able to pay attention as well as they used to. They may need more breaks. They may need more time with their peers. They may be trying to talk to each other the entire time you're trying to teach because they're so excited to see people their own age or just people outside of their house. They might be a little overstimulated. I would just be prepared for anything. Observe, observe yourself and see, and see how you react when you get to see all of the people that you miss. You know what I mean? And see if your thoughts are racing. It's probably happening to them. Their social skills, they may be acting more inappropriately. So making clear expectations for the classroom, maybe posting your, I mean, these are things that teachers usually do, but super helpful to post visuals outside of your classroom of the rules, maybe have them written out and put on the wall, have the students create the rules with you using their language. It's a, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer, but I, it's something that I'm not sure if I'm prepared for myself, but I'm going to approach it. Um, I'm going to meet the students where they're at and just being as patient as we can is all we can do. Another thing that I think would we should really keep in mind is that there are a lot of kids that are going through some loss right now. I know some kids that have lost their parents due to COVID and it's something that I feel like I wish I could do more for, but I can't. And I think that a lot of kids are, they're going to just, I would just expect them to, to need that assurance from you and that rapport and that support. And it's not, it's going to be, it's going to be a long road, but we got the tools. We'll make it work. I think that the, the kids will just be so happy to see their teachers, that their teachers mean a lot to them. And I think that hopefully will things will get better soon and we'll be able to be in the classroom 
I, I do have a question. We hear the adults, we hear the teachers and the school support personnel have these debates about returning to school and when the best mm -hmm. time is to return because of safety. I just wonder what we're asking students mm -hmm. about how they feel when you mention their students that have lost loved ones and how do these students feel about returning to school and putting themselves or potentially their families in unsafe situations. Yeah, that's the thing that really makes me nervous is that I know that the research shows that the kids usually recover really well or that they're more so they might carry it, but they may not necessarily get it. And what I'm nervous about is them now. I mean, I'm nervous for my coworkers. Hopefully we figure out a solution that's safe for everybody, but I also am worried about the kids bringing things home to their caregivers because I, I know we're trying to evaluate, I don't know, a lot of different things like the economy and getting back to normal. We're all anxious for it. I am very concerned about, about that piece. You know, I wonder if that's something I do. I do. I did hear about a student that was, she heard about the, the teachers having to go back to school and she was like crying to her mom because she was like, I don't want my teachers to get sick. So that was really sad. I, in terms of like how the kids feel working remotely, most of them hate it. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, most of us hate it too. Exactly. Exactly. They want to go back to school. I, I know that there are some kids that this is actually working really well for them. A lot of kids with some attention difficulty because the classroom can be a loud, noisy, busy environment at times. And it's really hard for a lot of them to focus. So some of them are actually really thriving in this environment, a small, a small amount. Yeah, there are some. Yeah. I had, you know, I teach mastering college for freshman college students. And I've had students to say I was bullied in high school. And so this environment works for me and mm -hmm. they are thriving and they're talking more online than they would if they were face to face. I think that's one thing that we can kind of get from this is that maybe maybe we can incorporate some of this structure into everyday teaching. If, if a student is staying home sick and maybe it's just like a sniffle, they could perhaps attend remotely. There's There, there might be some, some ways where that won't work, but I, I do think that although it, we got to see some of the silver lining in all of this, not every kid is built for having all of those distractions all the time. That's why we have IEPs or 504s to allow them to take tests in different areas or to wear headphones when they need it, hear read aloud. So I think the one thing we could get from this is that it's not an, a one size fits all solution to send everybody back. There are a lot of things that we need to work out. I think we're all eager to get back. I wanna get back. I'm almost, I'm almost vaccinated. <laughs> And I'll feel, feel a lot more comfortable. I mean, I'm going to do whatever I'm told to do, but <laughs> in terms of how I feel about it, that's kind of where I'm at. But yeah, I think the one thing that we could at least glean from this is that we're all a lot more aware of our students' individual needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to know before we end today, and thank you so much for all of the insights and the information that you've provided. You've shed some more light on what a school psychologist does. And do you have any final tips or strategies that you would like to share with the parents, educators who are listening, who have those children working at home or are bringing those children back into the classroom? Mm -hmm. um, I think the one thing that I would 
recommend for anybody that's like, I don't, what's next? What do I do? I, I would say reach out to your community, reach out to your teachers, reach out to your school psych, reach out to other parents, whatever comes next. We got to all band together and be here for each other. You're not alone. These kids feel alone. The parents do too. I've had conversations with parents that are like, I have no idea how to get them to sit still and attend their lesson while I'm trying to work. And just sometimes having that camaraderie and that relationship with either a teacher or another parent and just kind of bouncing ideas off of each other, you'd be surprised at what kind of tips you can get from the parent in 302. Like you just, you never know. <laughs> so. yeah, I'm glad you mentioned parents and I know that we're wrapping up, but just a kind of a final question. I know at the beginning of the pandemic, my daughter, who's a teacher, she was talking how the parents were so reliant on her. Yeah. I'm wondering if as the school psychologist, if you're finding the same thing that your parents are seeking your support for their own social emotional needs, yeah, we actually held like an after school, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's like a PD, but ways to take care of ourselves and also have foster self care for our kids while we're remote and while we're in this pandemic. And at the end, and this was a pretty large group of parents that attended, it was after school hours, they all just wanted to kind of chat about like different things that are working for them, things that their kids are struggling with, and then they needed reassurance. That's totally fair. Sometimes I need reassurance. I'm like, I do I even know what I'm doing? Like, that's why I have my, my relationships with the people that either have been trained in what I do or are in education or that I have really good relationships with or my cohort and we'll connect with each other and we'll find out like, oh, oh, wow, we're all, we're all feeling it. So I think just making yourself remember that you are not alone and that even if you reach out to somebody and you don't necessarily find a solution, you will feel a little bit more comforted by the fact that, you know what, this is just what's happening right now. We can't control it. So at least we have somebody to talk to about it. Thank you for that, Jordan. Thank you very <laughs> much. I have enjoyed this conversation. We'll have to have you back again and we can talk about more assessment. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And rubrics. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you so much. And we appreciate everything you're sharing with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sorry if I was a little all over the place, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>